0: All right, KISS Army, you wanted the best, you got the best. Now close your eyes, you're about to be podcast
1: Hello and welcome to your podcast, podcast number 59. This is part two of our Love Gun Roundtable discussion. This is Gary Schaller and with me as always, Ken Mills. So last time you heard us talking about this classic Kiss record from 1977, and we're gonna pick up where we left off with the rest of our roundtable discussion. On side
2: Uh, two, we flip the record
1: over. See how that works? Podcast is always up with the times. We're uh, we're going back to vinyl.
2: How cool is that? So sit back and relax and listen to side two of "Shut Up" and play "Love Gun." And we've got some great guests
1: for a roundtable discussion of one of Kiss's greatest records. And I want to welcome our, our amazing panel of co-hosts. We've got, no stranger to the podcast, Joe Casey. And we've also got the
2: creator behind, Yellow Yellowgold, Morgan Taylor. We are also joined by Andrew Scambetti of the yeah. tribute band, Mr. Speed. You know, let's, let's just kick this off with the definitive live version. This is when Paul gets stuck. Halfway across
1: the arena, and Jean has to sing the vocals. So let's oh go it. Love here
3: you. we go.
1: I a song that's this classic. It's
2: just, it's just perfect from beginning to end. It just well, came together for this. I think that Paul took everything that he learned from Bob Ezrin, this is him showing Bob, like, look at what I did. Because I hear everything that Bob Ezrin would do, as far as dynamics, uh, musicality, and production, this is it. It's almost like you can almost hear Bob Ezrin in this.
4: I, I agree with you so much, Ken. I, I was thinking the same thing. I was listening to... It's wh- what you know what makes the difference is that reverb on the drums and the in the in the main you know the machine gun sections if you want to call them that there the way he's riding the reverb up and back on the sections, is very Ezrin, isn't it
5: I think so yeah Joe this is one of those weird songs it's obviously a classic so it's it's kind of in a way it's beyond reproach but I think for anybody who is sort of a diehard lifelong kiss fan how could you not in a way, be sick of this song. You know, it's that ubiquitous in their catalog and in their live show. And, and I, I just I remember seeing them on the Crazy Nights tour when they open with this. My feeling was, thank God, this is we get this over with. And now we can really you know <laughs> ha, ha, enjoy the show. Um, but that's you know that's just that's the that's the jaded aspect of you know that you can have when you've been a Kiss fan for you know thirty something years. Uh, but if you can get over that, which I I'm, I'm trying to do right now, it's a, this is classic classic song, probably the signature Paul Stanley song of the '70s. This and Detroit Rock City are his sort of pinnacles as a songwriter, and as as you know to say um, and beyond that, it's it's sort of like a definitive Kiss song, which you know. They have their influences and you can go through and say, hey, they're, you know, this is derivative of this or this is, they're sort of influenced by that. Aside from the kind of the, the machine gun hook that he kind of t- took from Hendrix, um, this is a, this is a kiss song. It has, it has very little predecessor in, in, uh, with other, you know, the influences are very insular. So mm-hmm. on that respect, it's quite an achievement as a songwriter. To come with something that's so tight and so perfect, and um, and it kind of seemingly comes out of nowhere, but just your own craft and your own experience. So, well, well I'll, I mean, I'll get over my own prejudice of being bored with the song to say that it's right. probably one of the top five classic Kiss songs that have ever been written. Although you got to look at the album focus here, the the stuff on Kiss Fact that
1: um you know Julian put together because <laughs> he talks about how similar the song is to. Um, a song called "The Hunter." Um, let's see: Al Jackson Jr., Booker T. Jones, Donald Duck Dunn, Steve Cropper, Carl Wells wrote a song called "The Hunter," and I mean the lyrics are: "There, there ain't gonna be no missing, ain't no use to hide, there ain't no use to run because I got you in the sights of my love gun, my love gun, my love gun."
2: Um, I mean, lyrically at least.
1: Yeah, yeah but no, we I don't mean,
2: know if Paul heard that. You know what I mean? No. I'm not trying to be a well, no. fanboy or anything. You just you really don't know.
5: But I'm going to assume that he did, but that that I I, I still stand behind what I said because everything comes from somewhere
2: mm-hmm.
5: but um, you know I, I would say this would have to be one of those times where whatever influence he did have whatever inspirations he did have this song completely transcends that you know yeah no I agree
4: yeah. say there's a, a depth with the way the two guitars are interacting in the cordial cordial depth I guess that's unusual to any other kiss songs it's not it's not there's not a riff it's, but it's not strummed chords, it's kind of like, it's very unique, and you can tell Paul really took a lot of time uh, crafting that song.
1: Well, isn't it the song where he starts using an ebo, right, like to, to get those, like, yeah. legato yeah. Those notes? Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Just really, yeah, I think, Ken, you nailed it with the Ezra comment, and, and you, Morgan, you know, talking about the, the layering of guitars, you know, to make that very dense,
5: textured sound. There's also no guitar solo that is a dedicated guitar solo in this song, right. at least not and not in this version and not in the live version for years. So there was, you know, the Ace uh, lick that he plays over the, you know, chorus out. In terms of, you know, that later on they added a, a middle section with a guitar solo, but you know here there's there's not one, which to me suggests also from a production point of view that they were they were definitely eyeing this to be a, a single
2: for radio it kind of failed miserably as a single for radio. But. Well, as a matter of fact, you, you mentioned that we should talk about the two singles that did come from this album. And they were Christine 16, backed by Shock Me, and then Love Gun, backed by Hooligan. Hmm. So you had one for each guy kind of looking ahead to the solo albums again.
1: And of course, Gene and Paul, facing Front, and mm-hmm. Peter, yeah. on the back. And this brings okay. us to, to our next track, Peter's sole vocal contribution, and Oh, writing credit, too. Again.
3: I think this is one of those uh, overlooked songs. I mean, I think the song is great. I think, um, you know, years ago when I first got the Houston 77, you know, concert on VHS, it was one of those songs that always kind of stood out for me. It was like one of those really, I don't know, maybe because I was a drummer and a huge Peter fan, it was just one of those funky songs that, you know, when they did that, I was like, hey, this is really cool. This is unlike, you know, some of the other things that they've been putting out. And it was just and it was always that special song for me. Um, unfortunately, you know, when you know my band tries to play it live, it kind of goes over like a fart in church. But it's one of those songs that I always love. It's one of those songs that always hold a special place for me. I love it. One of my favorites. Me too. Me too. And, and I'll tell you, I'd
1: love to have heard it on a live, too. I'd love to have heard it on the reunion tour.
3: Would have been great in the reunion tour. I really would have.
5: You- I, I like the song. I, th- I think it's, again, it's this is one of those songs that's self-referential in a good way Mm -hmm. because it's very kind of personal, Peter's past and and the mythology that he likes to build up about his his childhood. Um, But to go back to the live version, what I love about that live version, I don't necessarily think that this is a song that Gene and Paul particularly liked. Um, I think they, I think he, I I, I know Peter presented probably a couple of songs as possible as well, and this is the one they chose. It was a live. it, It doesn't. Live it doesn't work without that full commitment from the whole band with all the background vocals and the dual guitar on the on the choruses and stuff and the fact that they they step up and commit to selling the song to the audience, that to me is kiss at their best, you know. When they're when they're it's you know, it's four really different individuals, but when they come together to to push one of the guys visions fully. That's, you know, I mean, I'm kind of still moved by the fact that they played that song live and mm-hmm. did it as well as they did it, you know.
1: Well, it's what a partnership is, you know, it's what it's supposed to be in a band that works like that, you know, where they 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 give you airtime.
4: I just wanted to put in my, my piece about Hooligan. To me, it's a, it's a filler song. I know you guys seem to like it a lot, but... Um, I, the, from a songwriting standpoint, I mean, that's kind of my focus on my critique on a lot of these. But this, uh, the verse is just like, it's one chord. And It's like, it never goes, it takes so long to get somewhere that I lose interest. And it's, it's a minute and a half before you get to the vocals, where the chorus, it takes a minute and a half to get to the chorus on the song. Which for me, it's just sort of like, by that point, I'm just like, I'm ready to. Press forward, um, you know. But I know it's I, I know it's Peter's only it's only lead vocal, but
5: it, it's got a really uh, Andrew. Maybe you can speak to this. It's got a really weird drum beat in those verses. It's got a lot of weird kind of to me. You know, there's sort of a disco tom thing going on.
3: Yeah, there is. Uh, even though it, even though it's
5: not a floor on the floor, it's you know he's still kind of accenting pretty regularly on those toms. Am I hearing that right?
3: Yeah, it's actually, there's there's a, a bunch of things going on in that song, too. Um, he's accenting on the tom, which would be, uh, I think he's accenting the toms on two, but he, what he's also doing is he's alternating a hi-hat pattern. He's alternating between uh, eighth notes and quarter notes on some of the hi-hat patterns, too. There's a lot of, I guess, a lot of signature Peter Chris things going on there, too, but those verses, they're, they're pretty busy. It's not just the normal what he was playing when he did it in Houston or any live version for that matter. He's doing some cool stuff during the verses on that hooligan track.
0: Here's a song from Peter Chris called Hooligan!
2: Have to at this point bring up a, another demo for the album. Of course, we're not going to play it, but there was a song proposed by Pete and Stan called "Love Bite." There's a big problem for me in this is that we, we've already established that the album is "Love Gun," which is basically a man's dick. But uh, the, the <laughs> lyrics, the lyrics, the lyrics, or some of the lyrics to uh, "Love Bite." Let me find them. Love Gun would be slightly more subtle in an Aerosmith walk-this-way manner than Love Bite with lyrics that went, I've been bit everywhere, but I've never been bit by a woman there. Love Bite. Feels oh so right. Love Bite. Leave your scar on me tonight. Kiss me here. Kiss me there. You can kiss me anywhere, etc. With... With, with Kiss's fan demographics changing from the under-the-12 crowd, it is likely that the band transformed its public perception from shock rock to family entertainment that the song was somewhat too rude to be used. Stan simply stated that it was rejected because it was too raunchy for their taste. So for an album that was named Cock, a song about getting bit is too raunchy.
4: I, I think that's, an, that's a nice excuse to just not have to say, the song sucks. Yeah. <laughs> You know, oh, oh, it's too raunchy. There's, there's some the pride the writer can take away with that kind of a critique, you know? But, you know, the song has a Bow Deadly beat, and it's just, the song goes nowhere musically, so that's why it was left off, in my opinion.
2: Yeah, I could just I could just see the meeting. Uh, Yeah, that song's too raunchy. Now, I got an idea for <laughs> a toy, which will be a Love God.
3: <laughs> hey, hey, there wasn't another, I, I think there was another demo around this time, too, is Love I think love is blind is from the love gun
0: oh
3: yeah, eras, right, um, and that 's like Gene like trying right. to be you know a member of the Beatles too I think you're, actually you know, love is blind is my favorite unreleased thing you know, what 's funny to me about that demo too is I love it, and it 's very, very similar to the demo of um, you 're all that I want, you 're all that I need, and I think those demos are better than what ended up on the record ultimately
2: that often happens.
3: Hi, this is Bruce
5: Kulick, and you're listening to Podcast. Uh, here we go. Take two. Hi, this is Bruce Kulick,
2: and you're listening to Podkiss, the best. Well, let's move on to our next track, Almost Human. Gary? Almost Human is one of my
1: favorite Kiss songs. The congas, I think, make uh, the song, give it that like kind of funky groove. It's, it's not like most Kiss songs in that sense. It has that groove. I love the guitar, so whoever plays it, if it's Gene, if it's Ace, they nailed it. It's such a weird, angular, noisy guitar solo. It, it reminds me a little bit of Strange Way's guitar solo.
2: It's perfect, and G- I think Gene's vocals cook on this song. All right, now we're going to move on to Joe. I think this is one of the coolest songs on the record. Again,
5: it's, you know, to me, it's, it's Gene trying to write God of Thunder. And failing, but what comes out of that failure is pretty interesting, and uh, the production is great. Again, it's, that, it's, it's sort of trying to give it that Bob Ezrin destroyer, multi-layered kind of thing. And it for the most part, it works. Um, it's the, again, it's one of those things where the production is better, also in the song itself. Um, you know, lyrics are a little bit dopey, and, and um, you know, the chorus doesn't, doesn't quite have that hook, but. Um, again, there there are elements about the production and there are elements of the recording that, and because you know it's it's a it's an album cut that they never played live, so it's not it's still fresh to a longtime Kiss fan. So that certainly earns it a lot of points for me. So I, I love that song.
2: There there were rumors that it was played in Canada. I I I don't believe that. I disprove that right now. Gene uh, played rhythm guitar on this track and the inspiration for it came uh, a silent movie called West of Zanzibar and there's a quote in the line where a guy's talking to a fellow to, that has wronged him. He said, one minute you're a friend and the next you're almost human. So that's another one of those Gene Simmons uh, movie moments that led to a song. Mr. Morgan Taylor, what are your thoughts on Almost Human?
0: Um,
4: this is just, to me this is, Smacks of this fella. I think, uh, I think the congas, I know Gary likes the congas, but I, I have to counter that with, I, to me, they're distracting and, and unkissed, um, and kind of what gives, contributes to the hodgepodge-ness of the, of some of the production on this. Um, but, I, I gotta say, the, the guitar solo is really cool. Uh, I, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but th- I feel like this is perhaps the first appearance ever of a whammy bar on a Kiss record.
2: You might be right.
4: It's just like a it's a, lot of, it's a noise solo. It kind of like a lot of it's like the dive bombing um, whammy bar stuff.
2: Now, who do we think that is playing guitars? That Ace on lead guitar there? I,
4: I could. Could it be Gene just making noise,
2: or I, I think it might be. I'm not sure, but there's some. There's nothing that really screams Ace to me about that solo. I say if Gene had played that solo, he would have told people. True. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I
3: don't think it's Ace because you know, um, fast forwarding to Ace's you know guitar DVD that came out about a year or two ago, he says he doesn't like tremolo bar. He experimented with it in the 80s, but it was one of those things that Ace felt. He was losing a lot of vibrato by using a whammy bar. So maybe it's Gene, maybe it's Paul, maybe it's some Joe Schmo that was picked off the Bowery. I was going to say,
5: I think this might be one of those Dick Wagner, you know, Rick Derringer kind yeah, of situations. Yeah. You know.
3: yeah, I was just going to say that the, the song as a whole, I'm going to agree, it was definitely Gene trying to write a God of Thunder like song, but it's definitely a good song. And I was actually shocked when those two foot Love Gun dolls came out that this was one of the songs that the Gene figure played. Um, not to say that there's an abundance of Gene material to choose from on this record, but when I pressed that thing for the first time and heard Almost Human, I was like, oh, it's cool. It's, they were giving this song kind of the credit that it never got or the attention that it never got when it first came out.
2: I'm going to go with Morgan uh, talking about the Congress, how it does give it an unkiss like feel. And if Gene was trying to rewrite... God of Thunder, which is uh, an early heavy metal classic, if you will. Uh, he going back to the funk presence on this track, and and Peter's great military drums, you know that that little drum line is just so cool. And and I think Jimmy Milan's congas uh, again uh, sways a person from thinking that this is Pete on this album. Mm-hmm. I think if, too, the dip- the difference between this really being a signature
5: song as I think about it, because I, I, I was listening to this last night, actually, uh, knowing we were going to talk about it, is that the song starts off with this really great guitar riff, this really great, I think, you know, this sort of N.E. guitar riff, classic mm-hmm. kind of, very God of Thunder-esque exactly. uh, formation of a guitar riff. But then when the song kicks in, it, this kind of higher counter melody comes in, which completely deballs the power of the original riff. And if they had just stuck with that original riff and not tried to give it the, that, um, I don't know if it's up a third or a fifth or that strange old, that goes to the whole song. Uh, it would have been a much more powerful bottom indie kind of song instead of coming across as, I mean, they were, you know, they were trying to be more musical with it, but there's a lot of power in, uh, I mean, it's kind of like, it's very sort of, to me, it's the antecedent for the modern-day Delilah riff. You know, those riffs are very
2: similar, if you think about wow, it. Wow, I never put that together, Joe. Great catch. Yeah. Huh. Nice. Think about that. Think about that. <laughs> That's a nice. Damn. That's sharp. What do you guys think of it lyrically? I think, I think
4: it's,
5: it's fun.
4: It's good to say with the larger-than-life kind of thing there. So A lot of these songs sound like the beginning of their solo album writing and I feel like this is definitely one of those songs that could have been on Gene's solo album. Yeah.
2: Very easily. As a matter of fact, this this actual recording could have been on there, and I wouldn't have known it was all of Kiss.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. It's got that kind of too many ingredients in the sandwich Gene thing with the concept
2: yeah. But then that goes back to what we were saying, this produced by Kiss and Eddie Kramer. It's not the same captain on the boat, uh, you know, steering the ship through the storm seas as it were. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> something only a Kiss fan can laugh at. Up next, Plaster Caster Joe Casey. It's a it's a great song. It's
5: a lot of fun and and uh you know, when I first heard the song when I was, you know, 8 years old or whatever, 7 years old, having no idea what the origins were. As a when you're a kid and you don't have the the kind of the really any critical faculties to to discern things, that rhyme is so kind of um, very sing-songy and very kind of like the kind of rhyme that a kid would 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 appreciate. So it's such a it's really a curious song because it operates on this very lascivious level if you know the the history of it. But purely as a song and as a as a as a rhyme, it's probably the most accessible song on the record for that young fan which, you know, now you, you look back, you know, and you think, wow, that's genius that it, it offered on both both of those levels. You know, I, I doubt that that's something that Gene Simmons was thinking at the time, but nevertheless, it, that's what it is, you know. You know, it's one of those songs where the
1: lyrics are so dumb, um, but, but if you take the lyrics out and just listen to it as a pop song, I think it's a perfect pop song. Gene writes really great pop songs, and Melodically the you know, kind of like you get a little bouncy major key thing going on. And it's a it's a happy little song, it's great.
3: I actually don't like the cut on the on the Love Gun album. It was one of those ones that I would always skip over, but then when I heard it on Unplugged, I was like, This is a great song. So every time I wanted to hear Plaster Caster, I put on the version from Unplugged, which I think far surpasses the version that was on the album.
2: Great call. Morgan?
4: Yeah, I, I like this one. I think um I think this one, uh, along with uh, Christine 16, are like two really good examples of Gene can really write pop songs. And granted, it's about, it's another song about a, a wiener, but. Um,
2: and I, <laughs> we see, we see, we see a theme hardening on the album.
4: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh it's funny because it's, all, it's like, it's so poppy that it's almost, I mean, I know this is kind of double irony with talking about Kiss music, but it's like, some of it, it's like, it's almost a novelty song, dismissible in that way, because it's such a novelty, and it's not, and it's almost like, because I, we happen probably to know that that Gene and any Kiss member did not have their things cast in plaster by this famous caster lady, it's, almost, it's kind of like this delusional, he's like imagining himself as such a big rock star that he's been... Uh, immortalized in this latest collection, which was not true, even true, you know, because he's putting himself beside Jimi Hendrix's schlong. <laughs> <laughs>
5: yeah, no, this is totally this is apropos of nothing. But can does anyone know? I, I'm totally like spoiling it here. Can anyone name uh, Chuck Berry's greatest hit, his biggest selling hit ever? Um,
4: my
5: my no. thing-a-ling. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So the precedent for songs that can break through the mainstream that are of, of this subject matter is, you know, it's been, it was set. So it, you know, it's not like they were sitting around uh, tittering about, wow, look at all these songs that we're putting on this record, um, you know, about cock. But you know, there was, it's, you know, it's, it's a grand rock and roll tradition. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm.
2: Absolutely. And the simplicity of the song is what makes it work. You. Totally on the money, Joe. Uh, the one song that when I hear this or when I think about this song, it invariably leads to Ladies Room in my head. There's a there's a connection there, you know, other than the fact that they're both Gene songs. But I can almost hear the songs blending together.
4: It's got the same rhythm and tempo.
2: Yeah, exactly. But it just it kind of takes me back to my youth and how that kind of is just stuck in my head from that time.
0: Faster, faster! Grab a hold of me, faster! And if you want to see my load, just ask her. Meet, meet you in the ladies' room. Meet, meet you in the ladies'
2: room. And we have the what I've always thought was an odd way to end the album out. I almost. Wish that they would have put this at the end of side one and closed the album with Tomorrow and Tonight. Other songs along with Love Bite that didn't make it onto the album were a song called Sincerely and another one called See You Baby, which actually appeared on the back of some proof copies of the Love Gun cover. Then She Kissed Me appeared in the place of See You Baby. Final song on the album is a cover of Then She Kissed Me, originally done by The Crystals. Other artists also covered the song Then He Kissed Me. The Beach Boys covered it and reworded the title Then I Kissed Her. Sonny and Cher did it as well. Glam Band, by the name of Hello, did it back in 1975, and then Kiss did it on Love Gun. Now let's check a little bit of the original recording of The Crystals doing Then He Kissed Me. Scambetti, for his thoughts on this track. Well, this
3: is one of those tracks that um, I always skip over. Um, it's just, I don't think it's a Kiss song. And um, it's funny, I have a co-worker who had Love Gun in 77, and she says, oh, that, and then she kissed Me song. is my favorite song on the album. I'm like, that, that out of all these songs, that's your favorite um, Kiss song. It was just one of those ones that I just think that, there could have been something greater that could have been on there. Hearing the stuff that's on Alive Two and then hearing the stuff that ended up on Paul and Ace's soul album, like they couldn't conjure together something like that and place it on the end of Love Gun they had to close it with this cover. And I just didn't think it was a good choice. And it was I don't know, it was kinda like it was really cheesy and something that you could clearly tell that KISS was gearing themselves towards a different audience. They weren't they weren't selling music from the streets of New York anymore. They were selling music to the youth, and they were selling music to 15-year-old girls.
2: Okay, I'm going to have to rebuff that one statement. You, you said it's mm. it's music that's not from the streets of New York. Mm-hmm. That's When you think about it, this is what Gene and Paul were hearing. All of them were hearing this song when they were teens. So well, in a sense, it was music from, this is Phil Spector, you know what I mean? It's all that thing. Mm-hmm. But, I, 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 but it, it didn't come from the crotch.
3: Yeah, that's what I mean by that. It's like when I hear songs like Love Gone or Cold Gin or Strange Ways or anything like that, I think that that's very um, a New York City flavor coming out of okay. that. It's them riding the subway. It's them, the hustle and bustle, being a, being a cab driver, being a, a, a beer truck driver. I'm thinking that that's coming from that. And then She Kissed Me, I don't think that came from that. That's them you know, on a jet coming back from Japan or at the Continental Hyde House or at some great suite at some hotel on Fifth Avenue and I'm just going, what can we cover on this one or what can we put in there to fill fill the album? It wasn't one of those things that came from the heart of KISS. It was one of the things that came from maybe the excess of KISS, I think.
2: Okay, that could be. And I'm going to drag us into something, but I don't want to get too far from this. Yeah. Uh, This album is very rock and roll. When I say rock and roll, we have the Big Bopper, we have Chuck Berry, we have that time. This, in a way, is a throwback to that same thing. So in a way, it's almost like, to me, the Love Gun album is them looking at music they came up with in some weird way. Gary? I didn't know it was a cover when I was a kid. I enjoy the hell out of it. Um, And, you know, it, it, it works with the kind of old school rock and roll vibe throughout the record. And I'm going to say, Morgan. What are your thoughts on this song? Uh,
4: I think it's, it's amusing. I guess uh, it's 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 on Kiss. I think to me, it's 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 the second time Kiss does a cover in this first six albums of their career, right? Besides "Kiss in Time," which is another song that was a cover that had the word "kiss" in the title. So I mm-hmm. think I, th- I feel like somebody else suggested this. Um, and the thing I like about it is um, is the fuzz bass is really cool. And but I feel like the reverb on it—it's like the rest of the album is so dry that the reverb creates this dis- distance. And I mean, I know I keep saying that, but it, it sonically creates the distance, but emotionally too, it's almost like it's not part of the record, you know? It, it's an afterthought, and it's like it, in this stage of their career, you you realize they're like. They're scrambling for material, and they needed to add a cover to this to even get near half an hour's worth of music.
5: Joe? Well, I have two thoughts about this song. Um, The first is that, you know, when bands uh, become successful, something very curious happens, and it almost happens to almost all bands I can think of, uh, with a few exceptions, but for most bands, they get successful doing their own thing. They somehow come upon something that, whether it's a sound or a style or a songwriting technique or whatever it is that makes them unique and thus kind of gives them some success. Once they reach that success, a lot of bands tend to feel comfortable and confident in going back and now indulging more blatantly in their influences. Which is where you know cover songs come out, uh, you know, and, and things of that nature, or songs that are or are more reminiscent of um, the stuff that influenced them. Like in the case of Kiss, I think Paul got more comfortable, you know, as as they got more successful, ripping off Led Zeppelin. You know, uh-huh. he, he he just he felt comfortable doing it, and and so he did it, which he did less of on the first three records. Now, um, so there's there's that aspect of it. The other aspect of this song to me that's interesting is that when Kiss would do covers, and they did it here, and they did it on um, uh, the one on the Alive 2 studio side. Uh, any way you want it, that's it. Uh, the Dave Clark 5 song. Unlike a lot of bands who do covers, when Kiss would do a cover, they would actually, it seemed like they would actually try to replicate the sound of the original song. So in the case of, of, of uh, then she kissed me, they're kind of going for that and ba- and badly. They're going for that, you know, Phil Spector wall of sound kind of vibe, which is not at all like the rest of the album. And so, uh, sort of as a rock and roll history lesson, it's interesting to see Kiss try to replicate that 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 Phil Spector wall of sound, but I think they kind of fail at it. And it just it just sets it apart from an album that uh, is already not necessarily all that cohesive. So I totally agree. Those, those are my two thoughts on that song.
4: Yeah,
2: I I concur. I love yep. Paul's solo on this track.
4: Yes, that's
5: that's definitely Paul, isn't it?
2: Yeah. Yeah, that is. Uh, you're right. That is actually that is a good solo. Now we've talked uh, during the rock and roll over round table. we talked about how destroyer influenced this album coming along and i i personally love Rock and Roll Over, to me it seems like a more cohesive album, whereas this one, I believe Morgan referred to it as Patchwork. Does everybody else feel that way? For example, Joe, which is better, Love Gun or Rock and Roll Over? Which is a better album? Rock and Roll Over, by far, is a better yeah, album.
3: Yeah, I say that too because earlier this year when uh, my band was deciding um, which full album we were going to play, we said, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to do Love Gun or Rock and Roll Over? And I immediately said, you know, Rock and Roll Over, not only because Love Gun has, you know, and then she kissed me, but when you pit the songs on Love Gun to the songs on Rock and Roll Over, you get a lot stronger material. You know, for example, you take God Love for Sale and pit it next to, you know, Calling Doctor Love or See You in Your Dreams. Obviously, the material from Rock and Roll Over is stronger. Yeah, I would choose Rock and Roll Over over Love
2: Gun. So then, let's take a look at where we are in history at this time. We have we've just done Rock and Roll Over, and now we know that we're going to record another live album. So we're we've got Love Gun that we're going to make. We've got a a live album that we know we don't have enough material to fill, so we need material for that. And not only that, guys, we're also going to do solo albums. So we know now why the cover, Then She Kissed Me, was being used. Do you think that there was any hoarding of material for the solo albums at this point?
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you listen to, you know... You listen to the material on Ace's and Paul's album, and that you know you could basically listen to both of those albums from beginning to end and not run into a bad song. I think that a lot of that was written around this time. It sounds like it too. I mean, any song from
2: Ace or Paul's album could fit on Love Gun. I would agree with that. Well, yeah, for the most part, I would agree with that. What about you, Joe?
5: I don't think there was a hoarding of material, uh, you know, or holding back of material because I, from what I understand, Paul Stanley tends to write in a very workmanlike manner. I mean, when they have to, when he has to do an album. He writes five songs for that album. Um, and when he had to do a solo album, I think he wrote, you know, uh, you know, eight, nine songs for that album. Um, I think that, um, if anything, this is just, we're seeing their pace start to catch up with them with Love Gun. And the irony is, if that was really a, a real, um, concern for them to say, hey, we want to do a live album, we don't want to, Repeat songs, because it's only, God, it's only, you know, two, three years later from Kiss Alive, which was probably still selling at that point. Uh-huh. Um, and yet, it, it, it kind of goes to show you, you really do need the material. They still didn't have enough material to fill out a double live album, you know? With three records to call from, which are three fantastic records, they still didn't have four sides of, of new live material, which I think is very telling. You know, because they did certainly they had uh, recorded Hooligan Live. You know that could have you know that that was on early uh, versions of Alive too, or at least it was on the track listing. Yeah, and Take Me. Uh, yeah, and Take Me. Exactly, exactly. But for and which I think, why Take Me instead of Tomorrow and Tonight? I'll never know. Yeah. Um, you know, because that, that easily they could have switched out the songs and it would have been probably a stronger uh, record. But you know, that's total. Armchair quarterbacking, but so I think it's just the situation was their relentless pace, their you know their work ethic, their success. This album is really that first sign of you know holy shit, these guys are pounding it out to keep up the love gun metaphor, um, and <laughs> <laughs> that that catches up to you. That catches that that would catch up to anyone. Now you know throw in success and money and drugs, and, uh, you know, look, I think we're... all the
2: trappings of fame.
5: Yeah, I think we're lucky that we got these records in the shape that they're
2: in, to be perfectly honest, you know. Well, we've talked about Love Gun being recorded with the eye towards the second live album, the sequel to Alive. Uh, If we were to get rid of that fourth side of Alive 2... And have it replaced with tracks that were, uh, have it replaced from tracks that would have come from Destroyer, Rock and Roll Over, and Love Gun. What tracks that didn't make it should have made it?
3: Well, I think obviously it's it Take Me because that one was actually um, done live. By do you love day. me? Yeah, Do yeah. You Love Me should also have been on there too. That was done live on the Rock and Roll Over tour. Okay,
2: um, so so wait a second. So so let's say we need six songs. We've already got two.
3: Um, let's see, I mean, there's really, most of the songs of Destroyer are already on there. Um, I think maybe from Rock and Roll Over, um, I don't know if, we, if any of these songs were strong enough to
5: put I on. Would have put, uh, I, I would have argued for Flaming Youth, which they did perform live, and it was actually oh, yeah, yeah. stronger live as a, you know, I mean, it would have fit onto the, to the Alive 2 material the way they did live.
3: Yeah, I always forget that was done on the European leg of the Destroyer tour. But that was, but you know, I think that's a great tune. Yeah. All right, so we got Flaming Youth. Do you love me? Take me.
5: We need two or three more. I think Hooligan probably would have. Yeah. Yeah. Personally, I mean, they were obviously they recorded it. It existed. It had. It almost was on there. So you might as well throw that on there. don't
3: know, maybe Almost Human, since that was rumored to be done live, and maybe it was actually done live. It would work well wise I think, you know, minus those uh, wonderful contests.
0: <laughs>
3: and you know what, I, I almost forgot, you know, why not throw Love Them and Leave Them in there? because Yeah, there you, you know, go. You know, I saw them do that track when they uh, played in Japan, and it was really, really cool. I could only imagine what it would have been like if they did that song in the 70s, you know, when everything was, you know, hot like it was.
2: Well, this is nothing against you or for you, Andrew, but I would have loved to heard them do Mr. Speed.
3: (laughs) Yeah, you know, I would have loved to hear that song, too. I I sometimes forget about that song. I don't know how, but sometimes I always leave that one off. And, you know, now that you mentioned that song, when they had that contest a couple years back about what song they were going to do live, and Mm -hmm. they're doing All-American Men, I thought for sure the song they were going to do was Mr. Speed.
2: It had my vote. So according to the podcast roundtable, side four would have been not necessarily in this order. Mr. Speed? Take me. Do you love me? Take me. Take me. Do you love me? Well, love him. Hooligan and love him and leave him. Flaming not a youth. bad. Flaming youth. Not not a bad alive, too. Yeah, not
5: but a listen,
2: I, this is total awkward There's
5: songs on that studio side of Alive too, that are classic. So I'm you know I'm not arguing for, you know, Two 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 albums full of live stuff because I wouldn't right.
2: I wouldn't trade having Larger Than Life and Rocket Ride for anything. You know? Oh, I agree 100. percent right. This is just uh, like you said, arm armchair quarterbacking at its finest. It's what we do. We we always talk about what could have been, what might have been, and what was with Kiss, and it all works out. So right. hey, this is Beth Jordan from Amplified and Eric Congratulations on five years. You're listening to the podcast.
1: Someone, somewhere is needing to hear from you. Someone needing to know that you care. Care
2: enough to give the gift of podcast. Tell a friend about podcast today. Download us on iTunes, friend us on Facebook, and rock your ass out. Podkist. Well, thank you guys for being part of this roundtable, and uh, as always, great insightful commentary and thoughts, even from uh, you, Joe. Well, good luck editing this.
5: Yeah. Hey, can I,
4: can I, I want to add one thing, I know, this, this, maybe this is, let's talk about the back cover for a second of Love okay. I'm, I'm I've been looking at my vinyl throughout this conversation, and it's it's been really throwing me off. The, the the song titles on the back of the LP are not in, are not in sequence. Right. They're well, not at all. Why
2: does anybody? Know they're why? not even in
4: alphabetical order either. No, I was trying. to I'm just like staring at it, and like I couldn't figure out why. Well, there
2: were actually some misprints of it with other songs that were thought to be included at one point. So I think that the Love Gun album was literally a work in progress right up till it was released. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think. It's got to be, except for maybe um,
5: either Hotter Than Hell or or Dress to Kill, I I think this is probably the fastest they recorded and released a record in their career. They just, I mean, it was just incredibly
2: quick. It's amazing when you think about the touring and, 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 and how these albums came out, like just even taking a look at Destroyer, Rock and Roll Over, Love Gun and Alive 2, it's, a, and then to think that they put out four solo albums after that and filmed a movie. It's insane. There's no other band that I can really think of that it was as prolific other than the Beatles. Yeah. I think that's yeah. right. But then again, that was their model, so it makes perfect sense. You know? Right, and, and it's no wonder that they didn't burn out. It's no wonder.
4: That was, yeah. I mean, it was, that was Neil Bogart's kind of, uh, momentum he was putting on it wasn't
2: it right well and uh everybody needed to get paid everybody had to keep this thing rolling uh you mentioned the the cover let's one thing we haven't touched on as far as the cover is uh the inside sleeve that blood on the marble
3: the the art i mean when we first sat down i i also pulled out my vinyl i kind of just I spread everything out. I took the dust so cover. wait a
2: second. You spread it out. You pulled out your love gun, and this is getting dirty.
3: Yeah, that's what I did. That's what I did.
2: Um, so,
3: no, I pulled it out, and I was just looking at all of this this great stuff because this all the stuff that Kiss did in the '70s it's such it's such a lost cause. And what I mean by that is bands don't do this anymore. You don't get right. you don't get this this great packaging with anything anymore, and that includes DVDs or whatever you you decide to buy. Um, you open it up, you get this awesome, you get this cool logo with you know Kiss written in blood. You pull out the record, it's got the four guys on the actual um, label on the record. You got the merchandise sheet, which is cool. It gives you a kind of insight as to you know what was going on at that time. Merchandise lives. then you got the love gun. What other band? What other band does that? And even you know going further in depth, when you get the next album, you got a book and you got tattoos in there. You know, it was just it was one of those things that whenever you had a Kiss album, what made them so special was all the cool, um, accoutrements that came in there. All, all these cool little things that, you know, people like me who weren't around when the albums came out, when I'm hunting for these albums, I'm like, does it have the gun? Does it have the order
2: form? I'm not buying it. It
3: doesn't have that.
4: It was like a happy uh, meal. It's
3: like a happy meal. Oh, totally. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, my meal.
2: God. You are so right on the money with that. Wow.
4: Great observation. <laughs> well, like the disc is the burger, right? Right. You get, all, you get the, you get, it comes with fries, drink, and
2: a toy. <laughs> so, so Gene Simmons invented the Happy Meal, let's be honest.
3: <laughs> he there did. One. He invented, and also he invented the, uh, the, the devil horns that are on the yep. cover. Yeah.
2: And, <laughs> and the Happy Meals. Yep. <laughs> one, one thing I want to talk about is that inside cover. I think that that could have been a cover unto itself for an album.
3: Oh, anybody absolutely. Anybody else like, think that? I, I agree uh, with you. That's a great piece of art.
4: It's not. It's not far from revenge. I mean, it's, it's got the logo on a on a marble background in that simplicity.
2: What would the album have been called? The site uh, of bad. Batteries. This is uh,
5: the album would have been called Bad Branding because I don't think they would ever put out a record where it wasn't their logo on the cover. Exactly. Bingo. You got it. So. I have a quick Love
4: Gun related anecdote that probably some uh, collectors can relate to. I, this was a. Um, it was like 1993, I was in a used record store. And I, I, was, I always, you know, I have everything, but it, yeah, I was always, you always check the kiss section just in case.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: And I'm leaping through and I see Love Gun, a used vinyl for Love, love Gun for like four bucks or whatever. And I pick it up and, you know, you always check, right? And I looked inside and there was an unassembled gun still in it. Wow, oh, wow. And in my heart just started beating out of my chest as I walked to the counter. I'm like, I would like to buy this for four dollars, <laughs> and they didn't say anything they didn't look in it and I got it and I was like I felt like the luckiest guy in the world
2: and that was, you, you got one over on
4: him I know right it's like one of those bullets <laughs> the, you know, the reason you go to the flea market sometimes is just to see if anybody splits up
3: <laughs> well I, I, I got a story just like that one and it's a real quick one it doesn't have to do with Love Gun but um, I was at um, and Ken you probably know these they're called The Exchange I know they're really big here mm-hmm. in Ohio um, yeah. I was looking at a copy of Kiss Alive, and um, I take it out, I open it up, and what falls out of the copy, Kiss Alive, the on-tour, tour book from oh. 1976. So I had wow. that same thing. I closed it up really quick, and I kind of, yes, I, w- I would like this. Okay, that'll <laughs> be $14. Uh, I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe $14, you know, for this.
2: So, because that was Kiss's first tour book. Yeah,
3: yeah. And I guess, I guess you know, it. it I've heard from other people, this has been done before, that that was mistaken. As the booklet that came in alive,
2: not a bad mistake to get a hold of. Yeah. So, Joe, what what do you have coming up uh, career wise? Uh, what's going on with you?
5: Spider Man, watch it, love it, bow down
2: before Which it. which which network? Uh, Disney XD. Disney XD, big time. Yeah. Well, congratulations! I'll be checking it out. And like well, Morgan, uh, Morgan, what's what's up for Gussifer?
4: Well, uh, I have a new DVD coming out. On April 3rd, it's called Gustopher Yellowgold's Year in the Day. It's um, 11 hand-drawn music videos about Gustopher. And uh, this, this one is a concept from beginning to end. It's, it's 11 different holidays throughout the calendar year kind of seen through the eyes of Gustopher. Some unusual ones get, get some attention, like uh, there's a Groundhog Day song and a Fat Tuesday song called Pancake Smackdown. And well, there um, you go. And the DVD, actually, there's plenty of kids' references. In the artwork, um, the, bee, the Band of Bees that got their own uh, Kiss dress-up in the last DVD I, I do again. I referenced the uh, Brooklyn Bridge show in one of the songs called Fireworks.
2: Wow, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, like, A lot of people don't realize how, how big this is. It's It's very neat. And Andrew, what about you? You know, Mr. Speed is playing. Also, oh. we're going to be announcing our summer schedule pretty soon too. All right, guys. Well, uh, it's nice having you all on the show, and thank you for being part of a discussion of one of Kiss's greatest albums. Yeah,
3: great.
6: Yeah.
2: great Thanks for having you. me. Pleasure. See you guys. All right. Talk God to bless. You. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.
6: Bye. And that is our show. Thanks again for listening. Be sure to check us out on the web at www.podkiss.com. You can also find us on Facebook and on iTunes.
2: If you'd like to contact the podcast,
6: please drop us a line at podcast at gmail.com. Big thanks to Julian and everyone at KissFAQ.com. They've got great information there and a terrific message board too.
2: Thanks also to Keith LaRue and everyone else at kiss online for their great work representing the hottest band in the land. And as always, a big
6: thanks to Paul Stanley,
2: Gene Simmons,
6: Ace Fraley, Peter Criss, Vinnie Vincent, Bruce Kulick, Eric Singer, Tommy Thayer, and the memory of the late, great Eric Carr, and the late, great Mark St. John. You are KISS, and we are your army. Podcast is created by the KISS Army for the KISS Army, and it is available for free as an internet download. If you like what you hear on our show, go buy it and support the people who made it. Podcast is not affiliated with KISS or any of its members, past or present. On behalf of myself, Ken, and the whole rest of the Podkiss crew, thank you for listening to Podcast, the KISS fanzine for your ears. Hi
1: there, this is Craig Kramf, and I am not in Chains, but I played on Love in Chains on Paul's 1978 solo record.
0: Uh... Uh... That was no good. Okay...
5: President describes her horrifying experience when she first realized the complex was on fire. I got this Ain't nobody got time for it. Ain't nobody
0: get tam for it. Ain't nobody get time for it. Ain't nobody get tap. Ain't nobody get Ain't nobody get tam for it. Ain't nobody get time for it. Ain't nobody get tam for it. Ain't nobody get tap. Ain't nobody get Ain't nobody get tam for it. Ain't nobody get time for it. Ain't nobody get tam for it.
5: This is one of those weird songs, it's obviously a classic.